Hello and welcome to Collectively Speaking. Uh, This is a new podcast series looking at the big issues in the built environment. As this is the first in the series, I thought I'd give you a little introduction and overview of myself and my background. Um, My name is Max Farrell. I'm the founder and chief exec of the LDN Collective. Uh, which is a a network of specialists working in the built environment who are driven by social and environmental values. For about 10 years, I was a partner at Farrell's Architects and Urban Designers, and I was involved in many of the large-scale regeneration and master planning projects. My background is in urban planning and strategic communications, but I became very interested in how we put teams together and how we collaborate within the built environment. I felt like we needed a new business model and I was very interested in how other creative industries went about formal collaborations through networks. And the best example I could see was around film where you have a cast and crew that come together on a project by project basis. And I thought that this could be a really interesting model for the built environment. We are now three years old and we have 50 members uh, with a whole array of different skill sets from the often described as the core disciplines of architecture, engineering, cost consultancy, project management, right the way through to specialisms like social impact, zero carbon, modern methods of construction. And we also have which I think makes it very unique, we have storytellers. So we have people that do filmmaking, web design, graphic design, and uh, and that enables us to really be at the top of our game when it comes to visioning for places. And uh, we do everything from visioning and master planning through to building design and delivery. And uh, we're working now on projects throughout London and the southeast, and increasingly across the country and overseas. Collectively Speaking is a series of podcasts and interviews initially with our members, but we're hoping to also include our clients moving forwards. They are long enough for you to listen to while you have a coffee break or a jog around the park, but also short and punchy and uh, making sure that we um, get people's attention. This is the first of the series and I'm absolutely delighted to be in conversation with Rosie Cade. I thought that it would be good to start with Rosie because what she does is sort of all-encompassing in a way. It's about how we can co-create new narratives and the power of narrative and storytelling to help shape the things that we do in our everyday lives as well as in our professional lives. And she's doing that for some really fascinating organisations, from philanthropies to architects to developers working across the UK and Europe. And the thing they all have in common is they're all championing the reimagining of our built environment and the belief that there's a better way of doing things. During the conversation, Rosie mentions a couple of uh, acronyms and abbreviations. So just for those of you who don't sit through endless built environment conferences, I can tell you that uh, ESG uh, is referring to environmental, social and governance. And MIPIM is the annual real estate conference in the south of France. 
Rosie, it's really great to be talking to you. And uh, you were one of the original uh, members of the LDN Collective, I remember well, uh, when you joined and uh, very enthusiastically embraced the idea and uh, have been a really integral part of it ever since. It's interesting also to me that your journey has taken some twists and turns since three years ago when you first joined. Uh, and uh, it would be just good to hear a bit about your background and also what you do now. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me. Um, I remember joining the Lona Collective um, in, I think it was October, November 2019. And actually, I'd just gone freelance, so I thought of it as a bit of a new business opportunity, and that was all. Um, and I've been pleasantly surprised it's been a lot more than that. It's been much more about connection and uh, learning from other people. Um, so, yeah. So I run a communications practice called Elizabeth. We offer strategic comms to organisations in the built environment who are trying to do things better. Um, So by that I mean they're finding different ways to develop, to construct and build and to kind of organise themselves. Um, And at the moment our clients are a real mix. We work with some developers, uh, lots of designers, so architects and engineers, um, philanthropies and some community network groups as well. Um, And I guess the premise for what we do is that buildings and cities are a big part of our collective health and well-being. And and obviously, 40% of our global heating is caused by the built environment, by its construction and operation. But we're still really at the start of understanding what that means and why it's happening and what we need to do to change that. Um, And I think other sectors, so fashion, food and cars and, and sectors like that are much more advanced in thinking about their product and its responsibility. Um, and they're also much more advanced in encouraging the, their users to you know, adopt better products, better things. Um, but we're still at the start in our sector. That means that there's a real role for people like my team um, you know, to show how we can do things differently, to work with people who are doing that and build them platforms. Um, so yeah, we want to offer a slightly different approach to traditional real estate communications, which is very much about, you know, pump it out, basically on broadcast 24-7. Um, and for our clients, it's really about getting really clear on what you want to achieve, who can help you in that journey and how you talk to them. And that's sort of where it starts. Great stuff. Well, um, I think you're, you've definitely uh, carved out a niche and, and it's... Um, I often think it's easier easier to do that and to adapt when you're a smaller business and when you own your own business. And uh, I don't know if you agree, but um, your background's obviously been quite varied. And you, you worked originally in an agency, I think, was it Knight Frank? Yeah. And then with a developer, uh, a very good developer, Argent, uh, on projects like King's Cross. So, uh, and then obviously setting up on your own and now having your own um, freedom to follow the types of initiatives and types of projects that you think are actually doing what you, what, what you say they should be doing and what we know they should be doing and not just there's a lot of um, greenwashing out there isn't there and, and ESG is this new term that many people use but not many seem to really truly understand some companies just seem to be rebadging what was previously sort of social responsibility corporate responsibility as ESG and and, and saving the planet but without having the evidence base to back it up. Yeah, I think that's right. So I I was working in a prop tech company in Barcelona and came back and um, got a job as head of development comms at Knight Frank, which is obviously you know an amazing agency, global, very intelligent people. Um, and it was the, I think it was the early 2010s. And so 
all the stuff we were doing was about new build and it was about creating places like Tech City and there was a lot of development going on in East London. Um, and it was massively exciting to work with, you know, lots of different developers doing really radical things. Um, I guess I became a bit disillusioned that changing places wasn't a very inclusive process. It was very much something that was, you know, thought of by a certain group of people in a room and then went on from there. Um, and yeah, working in a residential, there were lots of overseas apartment sales and lots of big glass and steel towers. And that was what was seen as a sign of success and a success for London as well as for the sector. Um, and in that time, I had one very special client, Argent, um, who lots of people have, have had the privilege to work with. Um, and I went over to be their head of comms for, I think, four or five years. And just feel incredibly lucky to have been there at that time. It was, I think they'd got the, the hard yards of comms out of the way. So they were, yeah, King's Cross was starting to be established in people's minds as an exciting place. Um, but really, there was nothing there. There was caravan and, you know, a couple of buildings coming out the ground. So um, it was about really working on the story of King's Cross and starting to think about communications in a different way. So not just what you're saying all the time, but having that part in the team where you're really questioning what people are doing and helping everybody understand the strategy behind what you're doing before you do it, I guess. Um, obviously, King's Cross is still going very strong and... Um, doing a lot of work at the moment on their environmental footprint particularly. Um, and I'm really lucky that we're still working with what's related Argent now on their Brent Cross project. Um, and I guess what I learned from working there was, yeah, just about how you make decisions about things um, and the need for integrity and a really, some would say, a, a protracted period of time questioning what you're doing before you actually do anything. But I think that's really important. I was looking at um, some of the clients you're working with now and and um i think the thing they're, they're quite often quite, they're quite different but they're all at the, at the forefront of what they do so you know the green finance institute there's um a, a, an organization that promotes timber as a as a the most sustainable building material uh and the loudest 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 or loudest foundation yeah. uh who you were representing out of mipim and uh, really interesting work they're doing uh, as a sort of um, uh, ESG uh, philanthropic uh, yeah. organisation. So um, how, what, what, what I'm also interested in is how can you take the lessons you're learning from these very progressive organisations and help the more mainstream that arguably need more help? Uh, That's a very good question. I guess, I guess my work to date has been focused on the pioneers because I think it is important that people can see who's leading the field. Um, but obviously, our sector is responsible for a big part of the problem, and we will have to bring everyone with us, and, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. Um, so I'm really interested in the role that people like you and other communicators play as well. So the people who are advocates and kind of agitators, I guess you can call them, on the activism scale. Um, so I think a lot of people in the sector know where we need to get to. There's definitely a feeling... You know, particularly if you have children, for example, we know the part that we're playing in the world. And I think there's a realisation that we know what we need to do and we have many of the answers to how. But there is definitely a need to bring people together um, to share examples and best practice and create these sort of persuasive and, and realistic pathways to change. And I think 
comms people have a real job to play. And I also think the personalities of people working in comms tend to be right for this role. Um, you know, we have this kind of natural ability to make complicated things hopefully seem simpler. I remember you, you said in the past, I think you said something like um, that, that real estate comms is broken and, uh, and not fit for purpose and, and maybe hasn't adapted as quickly as other industries, as you alluded to. But if what would be your um, recommendation and, and how do you think that that can be f fixed, uh, the things that are wrong at the moment with communications in the built environment? That is, a, again, a very good question. I think there is... There's sort of a dual role, right? You need to really make, create this awareness that it's just not acceptable to do things as we have been doing them and tell people why. Very quickly point to ways that, you know, policymakers and some of the certification and the people like the science-based targets and PCAF are really helping developers and investors do things differently. The frameworks are there. It doesn't cost you anything to use them. Um, but then on the flip side, I think it's important to paint a picture of what good looks like um, and I think actually what's interesting, I've been looking recently into sort of the other side of the comms spectrum. So people are advertising and marketing and what they are doing about this. So, you know, if you think advertising and marketing has been all about creating this desire for more and for things we don't need, and that is the business model. They are doing a lot of introspection at the moment. People like clean creatives um, and purpose disruptors. Um, thinking about how they can use their powers of persuasion, essentially, for better. Um, and that is all about creating a vision of what a life looks like when you're not constantly consuming and when you're reusing and when you're looking after things that you have. So I think that's something we could look at in the built environment, particularly when it comes to things like repurposing buildings, which is not as easy as some people make it sound. But I think that's where we need to get to. We really need to start with the premise that you shouldn't build new unless you absolutely have to. That is my personal opinion. Not everybody shares it, but I think there's a story to tell about why that's right and how that can be achievable. It's interesting that uh, things are moving in that direction, even in architecture, where historically architecture has always been about designing new buildings. But you know, the Architects Journal, their, their sort of flagship magazine, is now behind a campaign has been for some time called Retro First, where you have to look to refurbish and, and reuse, repurpose your existing buildings as, as first. And that's now feeding into policy and places like the City of London now have a very proactive policy saying you have to demonstrate uh, before you propose a new build that you can't reuse your building. Uh, and, um, and, and that is very interesting and, and, and does have a lot of challenges for how businesses operate the, the sort of business models, as it were, in the built environment, but also how we communicate and, and, and educate, um, how, how retrofit can be done successfully. Yeah. Um, and I think what's also interesting is we in the sector, we tend to think of the people with the power in the sector as our typical clients, right? So the developers. But I actually think there's, there's two other groups that have a lot of power that we need to consider. And so one, that is the investors, all the way you know, through from institutional investors to asset managers. Um, and I think that they, you know, they are actively, many of them are actively looking for ways to not just diversify how they make their money, but actively put their money into more sustainable practices because that is being led by a bit of a, as well as regulation, by the consumer push. And I think there's a role for us to help them figure out do you invest in timber buildings? And if so, what kind of timber buildings, for example? I think the other group that's really interesting, as you touched on, is the kind of 
municipal sort of local authority and city audience. And we know that many local authorities, for example, in the UK, have declared climate emergencies. Um, and the powers they have include planning, which I think needs looking at way more carefully when we're talking about environmental sustainability, procurement, for example, and also they are big property holders themselves, so the asset management piece is key. So I think where we can work to build their capacity and awareness support their energy and help them communicate their vision for their cities to be greener, that's, that's a really important role for us to play. I suppose there is, this, uh, there is a, often a, a bit of a paradox, isn't there, between saying we shouldn't build anything new and realising that there's a housing crisis and also a cost of living crisis, which I think um, is affecting everybody. But I think what you're saying... Is, is if we're if we're retrofitting successfully, then we can help resolve those types of crises through that means. Yeah. I think it, there is a housing need, definitely, but I think you need to unpick that a little bit. So I think the strength of our economy is very much tied to new starts, um, cranes in the sky, all of these kind of things, and that needs questioning. I think also there are so many empty buildings. Not all of them are fit for purpose. We can't, you know, we can't reuse all of them for sure. But for things like temporary accommodation, there's definitely a role that some of these buildings could play if we figure out how to retrofit them, you know, sensibly to the right design standards. Um, and I also think that a lot of the property sector is really financialized. So it's not really about providing homes or even workspace. Sometimes it's actually it's a financial asset. So when you start to go down this road, you really need to start to look at the sector as a system and look at the role that the end user plays in it. And the end user, you know, the resident, the worker, the citizen, isn't really considered that much a lot. Um, so I think bringing the end user into the sector a bit more, we're starting to see, and we were seeing it a lot with the really great placemaking projects, you know, with citizen-led design and with things like urban rooms. That's about empowering their built environment differently, um, which will take time. I think it's also about realising that the system at the moment is very extractive, and that needs to change. Well, I think that's really interesting, Rosie, what, what you just um, talked about there in terms of thinking more about the end user. And I've often thought that our industry doesn't do that very well and doesn't really understand the needs of the people that we are um, placemaking for. And there is definitely things are shifting, uh, whether that's sort of national planning policy, talking about community-led design codes and co-design, or um, urban rooms that, that are popping up, uh, as have recently in Newcastle, London, and elsewhere around the country. Um, so can you just sort of try and explain a bit more about that and, and how you think that the built environment industry or, uh, needs to use communications more effectively. Yes, I think it is really good that we are seeing more and more avenues for people who, you know, are involved with the built environment because they're a resident, a citizen. We're also seeing, I think, the sector just unfreeze a little bit to allow new models in. So, for example, community land trusts, really exciting new model. You know, the idea being that they take on a piece of land in perpetuity and build affordable housing on it. But the whole process is involving the eventual residents. And with that particular example, the challenge now is how do you make that mainstream rather than niche? And how do you bring that into models where developers are looking at a big urban regen scheme, for example? Um, 
to make that part of what they eventually deliver. I think um, a lot of the, the leaders in the sector are really realizing that involving a more diverse group of voices from the beginning is very beneficial to what they end up delivering. It means that their places are more successful. Um, and I think we're seeing, yeah, lots of the bigger developers being really receptive to doing things differently. So I guess in the old days, it was very much kind of interim, small engagement when it was probably too late to impact on things like the master plan or even the mix of uses. And that is really changing. And I think that's been driven by some really progressive planners and local authorities and even mayors who've really mandated that people are brought into the process at earlier stages. And then obviously some of the work that you've been doing and we've been doing through the collective as well. Um, I know there's a big piece of work with the City of London at the moment about helping it shape its plan. I think what I've realized is that communications is really broad and it is really beyond the classic media relations and marketing that you would expect. So I'm working on a bit of an idea for becoming more of the glue in the sector, if you like. So a bit more of a, a radical platform that brings people together and whether that becomes about events, uh, content channels, um, and helping the innovators talk to those with the power for change and kind of the other way around, you know, helping policy people talk to people with ideas and solutions. Um, because I think as communicators, we're, we're really lucky that we see all aspects of the sector and we're involved in some really really interesting and deep conversations and we do have the power to also you know be a bit more than a messenger well that was a really incredible conversation and i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did and in a way we covered so much it's hard to sort of summarize but i think what was particularly important is the championing of big causes that i think can really make a difference and whether that's retrofitting our existing buildings or supporting individuals and SMEs to have a greater voice in the built environment. Rosie is a pioneer in these things and I'm absolutely delighted to have her as a member of the LDN Collective. We're really keen to hear your thoughts and to help us to make this even bigger and better as a, as a series of podcasts. And please do continue to engage with the LDN Collective on our social media platforms like LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. And get in touch. Let us know. Uh, there's uh, an email address, hello at ldn-collective.com. And we would be really delighted to hear from you.